Well, hello, friends. Welcome here into this online space together. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge Community Church. And I'm struck as we're gathered in a space like this just how much the world has changed and does change in uh, just a short month of time. Just a little over a month ago, uh, at the end of February, February 26th, actually, uh, we entered into a part of the Christian calendar called Lent. And Lent is traditionally uh, the 40 days leading into the celebration of Easter, of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Lent's a season of preparation, a time for self-reflection, and it's often associated with giving something or some things up. But I gotta tell you, friends, 2020 is about the lentiest Lent that I could ever imagine. But I wanna say to you that if you gave something up for Lent, there's grace and there's mercy, for example. If you decided you were not going to have sweets during the month of Lent and now you find yourself at home in isolation and reaching for the chocolates, be blessed, be safe, be well, it's gonna be okay. But this season of Lent, uh, begins with a date known as Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is marked by a simple and solemn ceremony whereby a gathered community comes together to prepare their hearts and goes to the front and actually has uh, from the ashes the sign of the cross placed upon their forehead as a symbol of their participation in this moment of humility. It's a symbol of repentance and a reminder, those ashes and the dust of our own fragility and our own mortality. And this last Wednesday, uh, Meg, my wife, and I attended a gathering at Willoughby Church, just up on 72nd, and we're so privileged as churches and as leaders in this community to work well and worship well together. And uh, so we attended the gathering, and then I went, picked up our daughter from volleyball, dropped them both off at home, and realized that I needed to get gas. So I went down to uh, Costco and got into uh, the lineup and went to pump my gas. And just through the pumps on the other side uh, was a neighbor of ours. And so we started a conversation. And, and I could tell as we got into this, she said, oh, Brad, I haven't seen you for a while. And then suddenly she began to look up just above on my forehead and was making motions like this and kind of wanting to do one of these. And I realized in that moment that I had forgotten that I had just come from an Ash Wednesday gathering. And here I was out in the wide, wide world with the sign of the cross on my forehead. And as I got into my car, I realized again and was struck in that moment of the dis congruity of our experiences and perceptions of what was happening on my forehead. See, we were both looking at the same thing, but we were seeing two very, very different realities. She was seeing this as a simple smudge that just needed to be wiped off, 
or a stain that should be gotten rid of. And I was seeing this as something deeply holy and a meaningful part of my connection with Jesus and with the church. And I was reminded about that encounter and thinking about that again as we come into this week. And today's reflection is entitled, Everything is Not What It Seems. Here at Jericho Ridge, uh, we've been studying the life of Jesus as it's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And we have reached now the final week of Jesus' life and ministry. And the Sunday before the celebration of Easter is called Palm Sunday, which takes its name from the passage which was read so wonderfully for us earlier in Mark chapter 11. And if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to pick them up again and follow along with us. But see, even here, everything is not as it seems to be. Let's look more closely at these events and see what the scriptures can teach us about our own lives and how we handle it when everything is not as it seems in our own lives and also around us. In Mark chapter 11, we read the story of disciples who are sent on a bit of a odd mission by Jesus. They're told to go into the town. And basically, to us, when we read it, it can seem like Jesus is telling them to steal the very first donkey that they come across. And if someone stops them, they're to say, and say to them, hey, what are you doing with this donkey? They're to give them a cryptic answer. Oh, oh the Lord needs it. Don't worry. He'll return it soon. Kind of reads like a first-century donkey jacking to me, doesn't it? But Mark is fond of putting in details into his account of Jesus' life that indicate that there's more going on than meets the eye. For example, this phrase, the Lord has need of it, in it, Jesus is actually taking a kingly prerogative because only the reigning monarch has the ability and capacity then as now to press into official duties the property of private citizens. For example, in 1988, the government of Canada replaced the old War Measures Act with what is now called the Emergencies Act and which is often being referenced these days. And in it, the Emergencies Act allows the federal government to, quote, special, take special temporary measures to ensure safety and security during national emergencies, including the requisition of or use of property. So Jesus is essentially taking this same prerogative taking on this mantle of authority and saying to his disciples and to the donkey owners, I am acting as king. I have authority to borrow this for as needed for royal duties. 
And the Old Testament actually images, gives texture to this story, and they're important for us to understand here. The donkey or the colt is identified as the one which the Messiah, the Holy One, will ride in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and in Genesis chapter 49, verse 11. And in the Old Testament, riding on a beast that has never been ridden was considered a sacred act. And according to the Jewish Mishnah, no one else was ever to ride upon the horse that the king road on. And so while on the surface this might look like a brazen midday donkey jacking, everything is not as it seems in our text. See, this is Jesus acting very definitively with the prerogative of a king because he is the king over every king, and the Lord over every Lord. Even the entrance into the city, which Mark records next in Mark chapter 11, verse 8, is laden with irony. See, Mark's gospel prefers showing us things instead of out and out telling us what's going on. Look with me again at Mark chapter 11, verse 8. Eight. Many in the crowd, it says, spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut into fields. See, the people who attended this event would have a strong picture in their minds from their own national history. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 9, there's a ceremonial welcoming of a new king. The ancient king's name was Jehu. And the text says in 2 Kings 9, 13, they hurried and they took up their cloaks and they spread them under him on the bare steps and they shouted, Jehu is king. It's very hard for us, as modern readers, not to read Matthew and Luke's accounts of what they term the triumphal entry into this text in Mark. And certainly we can add color to it from those sources. That's not unfair. But if we pause for a moment and look carefully at it, Mark's account is way more low-key than some of the Palm Sunday celebrations that go on today. See, the cries of the crowd, Hosanna, are taken from Psalm 118, and it means literally, Lord, save. And in Psalm 118, 25 and 26, it's, it's a liturgy that's given to those who are on a pilgrimage, who are going up to worship God at Jerusalem. And as they make their way into the city of Jerusalem, this sense of Hosanna is to be declared and proclaimed, not necessarily as a messianic cry or a political statement, but it's, it's, an, it's an order of worship. It's an invitation into worship. And this liturgical text was used every year as the crowds made their way into the city 
to worship in the festival of pilgrims. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord is not, in that sense, a reference to Messiah, but it's a reference to the pilgrims as they enter into the presence of God. They, acclamations of the crowd, are then likely less specific than later Christian readers have tended to understand them. Jesus' entry that day was likely regarded by the masses as a pilgrimage in which they were joining, rather than necessarily a messianic triumph. Yet again, we see that not everything is as it appears. See, we take the euphemism and the pomp and the circumstance of enacting Palm Sunday, and sometimes we project it back into Mark's account. But Mark, unlike in Matthew chapter 21 and John 12, Mark doesn't actually use the messianic quotation from Zechariah 9, verse 9, in his account. In keeping with Mark's focus, Mark wants to show us, rather than tell us, how Jesus acted. And then Mark invites us to make our own conclusions as to the identity of this one whom the crowds adore. The crowds see themselves as coming into God's presence. They anticipate as they do that that they will experience blessing. And Mark's gospel is laced with irony because of the claims that Jesus makes. Not only the words that Jesus spoke, but also the way in which he acted. Mark wants us to ask, is Jesus acting like a king? Yes. Did the people who encountered Jesus encounter God's blessing? Yes. And if these things are true, what are we to make of the kind of kingdom that is coming when Jesus comes to us. See, friends, the fundamental question that Mark's gospel wrestles with and that each one of us has to wrestle with is a question that Jesus actually asks in Mark chapter 4, and that is, who do you say that I am? Maybe that's a new question for you as you pause and consider it. Maybe to you, Jesus is a good person, a moral teacher, an example of doing good to others. But Jesus' actions that he undertakes and the way that others around him experience him and see who he really is help us understand that Jesus was so much more than just a good moral example. Jesus was and is and claimed to be by his actions on this day the king, the one sent by God not only to live a perfect life, but also to lay down his life as an act of divine love. So compelling. 
that it invites you and I to respond, not only with our lips, but with our own lives and actions. Because friends, what do we do even today if we find ourselves in the presence of one who is royalty? One of the responses is bowing down. And the reason I think we do this is it's an exterior expression of an interior reality. We're saying with our bodies that which is true of the circumstances and what we want to say with our lips. And that is, by bowing down, I acknowledge I'm in the presence of someone who is greater than I am, a sovereign. And friend, the same thing is true when it comes to coming into the presence of Jesus. And maybe that's new for you. Maybe you've never come to that place where you've said, I acknowledge, God, that you are great and greater than I am. I acknowledge you as king, as the one who is worthy of my life. Then maybe for you, friend, today is that day where you come to that place of recognition and you come into the presence of God and you experience God's blessing, the blessing of being in a right and restored relationship with the one who is the king over all creation. Return with me for a moment to the story of the smudge on my forehead at the Costco gas station. In the Christian tradition, the palm branches that are used on Palm Sunday are kept, and they are dried, and they are kept for an entire year almost until we come to the next season of Lent, and then just before the celebration on Ash Wednesday, those palm branches are burned to ashes, and that forms the ash, which is then applied to the foreheads of those who come to acknowledge their need of God. It's a potent symbolism of something that feels celebratory and certain today, and yet in a brief period of time can become ashes and dust. Dr. Tim Gettert, in his commentary on this passage, notes, at a deeper level, a symbolic level, Mark's text is quite simple, but it's loaded. There's an irony in the acclamation of the crowds and the disciples. Is Jesus entering Jerusalem in victory, or, as we will see, has he come in peace, but he's come to die? However little the crowds themselves understand, Mark wants their celebration of the coming one to serve as an announcement of Malachi and the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. The messenger, John, has fulfilled his duty of preparing the way, and now the Lord is coming to his temple. And my sense, friends, as I read this text in preparation for our time together, is that one thing that God wants us to hear 
as a community and be reminded of in the midst of all of this is that despite all of the things that can and may be challenging for us in this season, the Lord is still coming to meet with us in his temple. The Lord is still ready to bestow blessings, the blessing of his presence on those who come and seek his face. The king is so worthy of receiving our honor and glory and majesty, even if it feels really awkward doing it from your living room couch. Acts chapter 7 presents us with an instructive reminder for us as we worship as a scattered community beyond the walls of a building Verse 48 says this, The Most High God does not live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Could you build for me a temple as good as that, says the Lord? Could you build me such a resting place? And the inference is no, because didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? Friends, the very one who made heavens and earth on that day long ago rode on a colt up to the city gates of Jerusalem and entered a throng of worshipers who were simply crying out an ancient psalm, seeking to receive, in the midst of a tumultuous time, a blessing from God. And yet the deep irony was that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, was there, God incarnate amongst them, riding on a donkey as a humble king. And for me, what I realize in that is that sometimes I have expectations of how God is going to, quote-unquote, show up in my life or in the world. And oftentimes these expectations are not met. But I wonder if sometimes, like the crowds on that day, I'm just looking in the wrong places. Sometimes I expect God to manifest in a powerful way or in a building or when the song set is just right and the worship leader makes the perfect transitions and I'm really feeling it on a given worship experience. But sometimes when all of that gets stripped away, God simply invites us to come into God's presence as we are where we are and to walk along with Jesus on this journey of life, to experience the blessing that comes on those who come as seekers, who come as curious, not ones with all of the answers, because often when it comes to how God works in our lives and how God works in the world, everything is not as it seems. And yet, the one thing that is true in any set of circumstances, including the ones that we find ourselves in now, is from Psalm chapter 11, verse 4, that despite all of the chaos and the noise and the disruptions of our lives. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven.
And the question is, are our hearts ready to receive him as he comes? Are we as a community ready to journey with him into the invitations to love others well and to know him more? We're going to move into a time of uh, celebrating communion, and I'm going to turn it over to one of our elders, David McFarland, who will lead us in responding to God in this way.